You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. All right. Well, we are about to finish an entire book. Is this not awesome? I love Philippians, and this is so cool to have gotten to share this with you. Um, And I'm just, let's pray before we jump into chapter four, our last chapter. Lord, speak to us now through your word. Open our ears to hear from you as only you can do. And Lord, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm just going to jump in. I'm going to read a couple of verses um, at a time, and we'll go over them. I'm going to read the whole, we are going to cover the whole chapter, um, but I'm going to take it a couple of verses at a time. Verse 1, and I'm going to read this one in the New Living Translation. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends. For you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Paul opens chapter 4 as a continuation of what he just talked about, what Dana just covered so beautifully, the promise of the resurrection. Paul's as excited about that resurrection as Dana, our citizenship in heaven, and how that should impact our lives. The Philippians are his crown because they were the fruit of his labor. He loves them. You hear that throughout each chapter. His heart's desire is to share the truth of who Jesus is with them, and and it led to their standing firm in the Lord. This reminds me of uh, one of my favorites, 3 John 1.4, which expresses my heart for my children, and I'm sure yours for yours as well. It says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. When we love someone, as Paul loved the Philippians, we are eager for them to stand firm in the truth and stay true to the Lord not for our benefit, but for theirs, which, okay, we're going to hear Paul kind of jump right into that with verse 2 through 3. I implore Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When we're on mission together, We are united by mutual love and service to the Lord, and we are eternally united by the works that we do together. These women were part of the team. They worked together in service to the Lord, yet some sort of disagreement has disrupted their unity, and Paul is asking them to go back to being of the same mind. From the book, uh, The Insanity of God, that Aaron told us about, I learned that the Chinese role in the underground church is pretty simple according to them. The men get thrown in prison. We share the word that we don't worry about credit or titles. That's all that matters. And it's like, well, I think that's a pretty great example of women who are of the same mind in the Lord. Justin's mentioned that in his several times that mission brings opposition. The Chinese churches also believe that opposition is a measure of God's activity. Satan loves to bring division. And y'all feeling that? All or throughout the world now, especially within the church, especially to those who are on mission. He knows that if he can get us distracted by our hurt feelings, we won't be praying for and ministering, ministering to those that God has placed in our path. We won't be supporting and encouraging the ministry of others who we suddenly see as our competition instead of our co-laborers in Christ. 
the best study I've ever been a part of in regards to forgiveness and letting go of past of deep wounds and past hurts and hurt feelings is Healed and Set Free. It's a 10-week study that I highly recommend if you have any bitterness that you can't seem to shake. Here's some of the lessons I learned from that. The smallest offense or resentment or bitterness towards someone is big enough to build a wall between me and the Lord. Bitterness is a root. Roots grow underground. The root of bitterness begins to grow very quietly. By the time it sprouts up, a lot of damage has already happened to destroy your heart. Notice it destroys your heart, not the heart of the one who hurts you. I learned through the study to ask God to show me what was in my heart and to help me see the bitter roots growing there. I saw sin stemming from roots of bitterness and just this uh, unforgiveness and futile thoughts of, well, I'm going to tell, this is what I'm going to say to tell that person and everyone else my side of the story and set the record straight. As a result, I was blocking God out of my life at the moment I needed him most. Once I saw what was in my heart, I learned to agree with God, also known as confession. Confession is seeing sin the, way, the same way God sees it and feeling sorry for it, sorry enough to change. Every time the bitter thoughts would enter my mind, I would stop and say, Okay, God, I agree with you. My thoughts about this person are sinful. I'm sorry. Please be the gardener of my heart and remove these bitter roots. I'll have to confess, there was a season when I said this prayer probably a dozen times in a day. But God is faithful. He not only forgave me, He changed my heart towards the person who hurt me by hurting my daughter. I was set free from the bondage of unforgiveness. When I was reading A.W. Tozer's book, another one Aaron told you about, Knowledge of the Holy, it just really stood out to me that um, prior to the cross, Jesus had been in perfect unity with the Trinity. The Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, He was perfect unity. But then on the cross, when every sin that was ever committed by me, by us, and those against us were on him, that at that moment, he was out of fellowship for the first time. And it was agony for him. Yet he chose to do that so that we could be forgiven and we could be in fellowship with him. That is why we can forgive others. Because Jesus already paid for their what they've done. He paid for their sins. Yet... Forgiveness is a decision, whether we make to obey God or not. It's a commandment to forgive from Him to us. The awesome thing, and this is one of the biggest takeaways I had, is that it takes place between us, our heart, and God. It really doesn't even involve that other person. They don't have to say they're sorry or change for God to set us free from unforgiveness. And it's a good thing because there's a lot of people that aren't ever going to apologize. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I was set free from the bitterness by God and never even had to have a conversation with that other person. Sometimes that other person doesn't even know they hurt you, which might mean they don't realize you heard the gossip that they said behind your back. <laughs> so now I'm going to meddle even more. I know that Satan is hard after marriages and families, especially Christian marriages. So I'm going to tell you straight up, these lessons about forgiveness towards other women can also be applied to our spouses. 
doesn't matter why you're bitter towards him, short of abuse, you need to forgive him. Confess your bitterness and unforgiveness to the Lord and ask him to remove the bitter roots from your heart. They were planted there by Satan, and you need to allow God to remove them. Don't wait for an apology or change in behavior first. It doesn't matter. Forgiveness is between you and the Lord. And no matter what has happened to you, God's goal is to bring you to a condition where the negative issues of the past no longer affect your present and future life with Him. So back to verse 2. Do you notice that Paul does not say, hey, go find out the story and see who's right? No. He said, I implore you to be of the same mind in the Lord. Encourage these ladies to see the sin in their own hearts, to confess those sins to God and let their minds, get their minds back on sharing Jesus with a lost world. So many people will spend eternity in hell and never know the peace of God in this lifetime. If we are focused on our own heart, our own hurt feelings, instead of the eternal destination of the lost, Satan wins. Now verse 4 through 5 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. How can we not rejoice? If we truly understand all that we've been forgiven and know that we get to spend eternity in heaven thanks to hearing about and placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we must rejoice. Spurgeon says, People who are very happy in the Lord are not apt either to give offense or take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by our little troubles, which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is a cure for all discord. Isn't that awesome? I love, like Stacy, I love Spurgeon. And the word gentleness used here is, describes how Jesus responded to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery with patience and meekness and forgiveness. And then the fact that the Lord is at hand is a reminder that time is short. Jesus will settle every wrong at his return. Instead of focusing on our hurt feelings, let's rejoice that we get to be on mission with him to share uh, Jesus and set the captives free. Okay, so now on to 4, 6 through 7. These are some tough-to-obey verses, but they're awesome. Notice they're not suggestions, they're commands. And it didn't start with Paul. It started with Jesus in Luke 12, 22 through 24, uh, when he told us not to worry. Now, I don't know about y'all, but as parents, we used to teach our kids disobedience is a sin. So Jesus tells us in Luke 12, do not worry. If we habitually worry, what's that called? It's disobedience, which is sin. So now I'm not saying that having a fearful thought is sin. We're going to have moments of fear, and but we can't camp out there. We can't live in bondage to fear. I've been there, and it wasn't healthy for me or the ones I worried about. So the New Living Translation of these uh, six through seven says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then, you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. All right, let's start with the last part of that verse. 
Do any of y'all want peace? I mean, I know I do. And the English word peace generally means absence of conflict. And yes, there are times I just want that peace. Can I just have one day without conflict? (laughs) But the Hebrew word shalom means so much more. It suggests a state of fullness and perfection, overflowing inner and outer joy, peaceful serenity. I want that peace. Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace or shalom, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. This peace that Jesus gives can weather any earthly storm because it is anchored in him and his trustworthy word. So we want the peace and more accurately, we want the shalom. So back to that preceding verse that tells us how to get it. Don't worry about anything. All right, I'm going to confess, this is, this is a sin that I've struggled with. Most of my worries have concerned my children, and for moms of young children, I am really sorry to tell you it doesn't get easier as they get older. Um, what if they have a wreck? And I felt like I had a really good excuse for worrying about this because some of you know, you know, my son was in a really bad wreck uh, due to black ice. Our youth pastor was killed instantly. Our son was in a coma for 10 days. Um, You know, so I, I have some history there. But Jesus didn't say, don't worry about anything unless you have a really good excuse or reason. He said, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. The New King James Version says, be anxious for nothing. That Greek word for anxiety is merimna, and it means dividing and fracturing a person's being into parts. It also means to strangle. It strangles the life out of our walk with the Lord. Well, that sounds like fun. No wonder he commanded us not to go there. Let's not be like the one in the parable of the seeds whose faith is choked out by the worries of the world. All right, so my strategy for dealing with my sin of fear and anxiety is similar to what I told you before about the bitterness. Every time a worry pops in my head, I'd say I'd choose to confess it as sin. Say, okay, God, here I am again, agreeing with you. My thoughts uh, of anxiety, of giving in to anxiety is sin. Please forgive me for focusing on what might happen instead of thanking you for all you've done, all the times you've providentially protected my children. And then I have peace for about 10 minutes. And then it starts all over again. I go, wait, wait, what if, what if? Okay, God, here I am again, agreeing with you. My thoughts, giving into anxiety is sin. When anxiety knocks at the door of your heart, let prayer answer it every time. When we experience this shalom of God, you learn to thank God in the midst of the situation and let him to teach you what he wants you to learn from the situation. For example, that wreck uh, I had, that was, you know, Lord, thank you that my son didn't die. Thank you that Mike is in heaven. Thank you that many of his family came to know the Lord, learned about him at his funeral. Help me to learn to trust you in the midst of this season. Help my family learn to depend on you instead of me. That peace, shalom, that passes understanding really is amazing. It is worth the effort to confess our sin of worrying in order to receive it. 
did you notice that it is described as the peace that passes understanding? Peace never comes from understanding. If God explained the reason for every bad thing that ever happened in our lives, especially women, we would have a much better plan for him to consider. We're helpers by nature, and we're good at it. Do you know why God created man first? Because he didn't want the woman telling him how to do it. (laughs) True peace passes understanding. His ways are not our ways. Peace comes from our relationship with him, and relationship with him is what it's all about. God didn't always calm the storm, but he is with us, and he calms us in the midst of the storm. So going on to verse 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. There's another promise. Do these things and you get peace. He gives us, he tells us how to get peace. All right, so Paul previously told us what not to meditate on, the worries of the world, and now he's telling us what we should meditate on. There's been a bunch of studies about worry, and one of them said that 92% of the things we worry about never happen. So why don't we choose, like Paul, to think about the things that are true instead of the things that probably won't even happen. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, shalom, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Romans 12, 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do this practically? There's two children's songs we need to go back to. One of them is, Read your Bible and pray every day. The other ladies have mentioned this. What's good for our children is good for us. Try this for just 30 days and see if it makes a difference. Sit down and read the Bible for 10 minutes. We have reading plans. You could read a psalm. You Read Philippians. Philippians is a great book, as you've found out today. And then pray. Just talk to God for seven minutes. It's all about relationship. And then listen. This is the hard part for some of us to sit and listen, just three minutes. Wait and see, give him a chance to talk. We like to monopolize the conversation, but he likes to speak to us if we would just be quiet and listen. For one minute, identify a specific truth you learned from your time that you could apply to your life. So start that day, start each day with for 20 minutes of time with God and reading his word and praying every day. This is a great start to transforming your, to renewing your mind. The second children's song that we need to remember is Be Careful Little Eyes What You See. We'd be wise to remember Jesus is with us always. Are we comfortable with him seeing what we're watching, with him seeing what we post online? Is it praiseworthy? Is it edifying? Sometimes we can't help the thoughts that pop into our minds. First Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking one to devour. Revelation 12.10 says, He is the accuser of the brethren. He's telling lies about us and about those around us. 
the concept of our verse is to choose what we meditate on. That meditate is the key phrase. When a lie from the enemy enters your mind, have a scripture card, have index cards uh, ready to speak to, instead of listening to the lie. Replace the lie of the enemy with the truth of scripture. Some examples, my child is a prodigal. Philippians 1.6, we went out, we heard today, he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. And I believe with all my heart, many of our children that are prodigals, he did begin a good work in them and he will be faithful to complete it. Remember that. God won't forgive me this time. God's always ready to forgive. 1 John 1.19, I can't stop worrying. Cast all your cares on me. 1 Peter 5.7, I'm not loved. I love you. John 3.16, John 13.34, I can't forgive myself. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. I'm alone. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God couldn't love me. He rejoices over me with singing, Zephaniah 3.17. I can't afford to tithe. I'm broke. My God shall supply all your needs, Philippians 4.19, which based on that, truth, I'm going to jump ahead, um, skip ahead to 14 through 19 in our uh, Philippians. Starting with verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that at the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica, you did sent aid once again for my necessities. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have, I have all and abound. I am full and have received from Epaphroditus the things you sent, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's thanking the Philippians who were not well off. They weren't a rich people because they sent money and provisions more than once. He is thanking them not in order to receive more gifts, but so that they will receive the blessing that comes from giving to God. Giving is a part of our worship. I think we forget that. And no one is too poor to give. Jesus, think about Jesus watching the widow who put in the small amount. Um, Wayne and I started off really poor, and yet we were convicted to continue to tithe. And I can testify to God's faithfulness. When we didn't know how it was going to work out, God did. And we learned a lifelong lesson to trust Him with our finances. And we learned the difference between want and need. And we learned to worship Him through giving. And He supplied our needs which is a great transition into our next section, which is going to be back 10 through 13, on contentment. All right, now I'm sure y'all have never fallen into that when-then thinking, have you? You know what I mean. When I get out of school, I'll be happy and content. When I get married, then I'll be happy and content. Well, now, when I have children, then I'll be happy and content. Well, that wasn't it either. When my kids finally grow up and get out of my house, I will be happy and content. Contentment's not a destination that we will ever find through our circumstances. Uh, actor Jim Carrey is quoted as saying, I wish everyone 
would get rich and famous and everything they dreamed of so they could see that it isn't the answer. And that's not a biblical context, so let's look at Paul's perspective on contentment. Verse 10 through 13, How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. Now, I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, verse 13 has been quoted a lot. Dana uh, talked about marathon runners, and there's this verse has been taken a little bit out of context sometimes. This verse is not about winning a race. It's not the race Paul was talking about. Paul's, the rest of his resume in the letter to Corinthians gives us insight into the things he can do through Christ who gives him strength. And I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. All right, so this is after all of his background of who he is. This is his recent resume, his work resume. I've worked harder, been put in prison more often, whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times, Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all this... I have the daily burden of my concern for the churches. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray that I do not burn with anger? I just listen to Paul's heart and what he's endured, which, like Dana says, nothing compared to what Jesus went through. But these are the circumstances in which he learned to be content. These are the things he can do through Christ who gives him strength. Again, in the book, The Insanity of God, the stories of the current day persecuted Christians sound almost exactly like Paul's resume. It's crazy that people are going through that whole list of things I just listed. They're going through those things right now. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. Notice on the may have peace, he gave us some conditions. Do this and you'll have peace. Do this and you'll have peace. But you will have tribulation. We don't have to do anything to get the tribulation. Jesus was tortured and killed. His disciples were tortured and killed. And today, many Christians around the world are tortured and killed for proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ. But the Chinese believers expect to go to prison for their faith. They consider prison their their a seminary. They said when they come, they come out of prison with a deeper connection to God and other believers. They believe persecution is the soil in which their faith can grow. They willingly go to prison and die for sharing Jesus with others. 
One Russian believer said to the author of the book, don't you dare give up in freedom what we would never give up in persecution. When asked if he thinks persecution will come to America, the author said, well, since Satan's goal is to prevent people from hearing of Jesus, why would he wake us up with persecution if we're already silent? A Muslim woman in Africa was put uh, in a dark dungeon below the police station uh, for becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. It was dark and it was full of spiders, and she was about to cry out in fear. And instead, she gave a heart song to Jesus. She just cried out her praises uh, to Jesus. The police chief led her out and took her to his home, and he said, every woman that I know is terrified of places like that. Why did, were you courageous enough to sing a song to your God? What is the reason for the hope that's in you? First Peter 3.15, if we're not showing people that we have hope, they're not going to ask us about it. Later, a persecuted believer came to America and went to church with the author of the book. She stared around in amazement and fear. When asked why, she said, well, I'm waiting for the police to run in and arrest us. Then when a family was baptized, she looked around again in amazement that people weren't standing up and cheering at the miracle of being able to hear the words, sing praise songs together, to um, be baptized, and to take Holy Communion without fear. In that experience with the author and then the Chinese believers saying, you know what? You live in a miracle. Y'all experience miracles every Sunday. We can't even meet in the same place more than once. We can't have more than two to three people together. We can't sing out loud. We just have to mouth the words. We have to share one Bible and tear it into pieces so that everybody will have a little bit. And he said, you know what? After hearing all of that, never again will I take communion without thinking of the last time. I took communion with four um, uh, in Mogadishu with four Somali brothers who would soon be martyred. I never partake of the bread and the cup without an awareness that I'm doing just not for myself, but on behalf of the brothers and sisters around the world who will never have access to the body and blood of the Lord in the service of Holy Communion. Do you notice the nationality of some of these persecuted believers? Some of them were Muslim, Chinese, Russians. The world tells us these are our enemies. The Lord tells us we're united in Christ. So let's take Paul's advice to the ladies who are in discord. As we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, let's ask God to reveal any sins of unforgiveness or bitterness that we need to confess. Let us be of one mind with our sisters in Christ united in the goal of sharing Jesus with a lost world. Let us confess any sins of living in bondage to fear or anxiety. Let us set our minds on the things that are praiseworthy. Let us allow Jesus to fill us with his peace. Shalom. As we take the Lord's Supper, let's celebrate the freedom to do so without fear of persecution. 
Let's remember our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have this privilege. Let us not take for granted the amazing blessings God has given us. Let us not give up in freedom what the persecuted would never give up in persecution. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. On the same night, Jesus was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now the elements are at both of these tables up front, but before you come forward to partake, spend time with the Lord in prayer. Examine your hearts and prepare to be united with him in Holy Communion. It's been mentioned that there will be prayer uh, ladies available to pray with you. Uh, There'll be cards available for you to leave your name if you want someone to contact you in order to, to have somebody just pray. And you don't have to tell your story. That's the cool thing. You can just say, I need prayer. No one has to know the details. But let's be united with the Lord through Holy Communion.